Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And welcome to the Napoleon Assist. We're going to do something a little bit different for the next instalment of Napoleon Month. I am joined by four fellow Napoleonic experts. I have Jimmy Chen. Hello, Jimmy. How are you doing? Hello. I'm doing very well. Thank you. Jimmy, some of you will know, particularly if you're on Twitter, runs Napoleonic Impressions. And I hear a rumour that he quite likes Russia when it comes to this period. No idea where that comes from. I'm also joined by Geraint Thatcher. Right, Geraint? Hello, nice to meet you. Uh, Geraint is a Napoleonic buff hailing from Chester and is the person who keeps campaigning for me to do the War of 1812 on the Napoleonicist. I haven't obliged him yet, but I keep promising as him that I will get there. And I will get there, even if it ends up being the very last episode that I ever do. But it will happen. <laughs> We also have Rachel Stark, who is a hobbyist of the Napoleonic era, who fell in love with the period through Sharp. Hey, Rachel, how are you doing? Very well, thank you. And finally, but by no means least, we have Josh Proven, who uh, stars and, and runs, really, Adventures in Historyland, and has written a couple of books, including Wild East, Britain in Japan, 1854 to 1868, and has another book forthcoming, Bullocks, Grain and Good Madeira, which is on the Maratha and Jat campaigns of 1803 to 1806. Josh, how are you doing? Doing very well. Let's start, first of all, with your stances on Napoleon, because it's Napoleon month. It'd be good to get your take on the guy. Rachel, ladies first. Napoleon, what's he like for you? It's complicated. Um, I find Napoleon very, very interesting. I find his life very fascinating. I don't think he was the Antichrist. I don't think he was a good guy. I think he was a complex person who had prodigious talents in some areas, uh, some areas, total lack of talents in other areas. Um, he was a very great military leader, not a great diplomat. 
um, who made some good decisions and quite a lot of really bad, really unforgivable decisions. So I find him very, very interesting, but I don't think you can make him a good guy. That sounds remarkably nuanced and not like the Cult Napoleon at all. So the Cult Napoleon is going to be seething with that response, but I'm, I'm happy with it. Josh, give me your take. My take on Napoleon. Um, I am an admirer up until Egypt, and then I slowly slide down the hill of uh, being unable to uh, stand the man until he goes to St. Helena, where I begin to see his humanity again. Um, I uh, wholeheartedly uh, ad admit and acknowledge his talents, but much like Rachel, I, I can't quite see him as the, the stainless hero that some people see him as. Fair enough. This is probably going to be a little bit of a running theme. Jimmy, what's your take? Well, uh, great military commander most of the time, changed the world in many respects, uh, but he wasn't able to adapt to changing circumstances as much as some of his contemporaries. Fantastic. Yeah. No, it, that's that's brilliant. I, I haven't got any issues with that whatsoever. And Geraint, are you going to suddenly wave the flag for cult Napoleon? Uh, no, <laughs> um, I, I, agree with, I agree with Rachel. He was a, he's a complex and interesting man. But at the end of the day, he was a warlord uh, and he did love war. I mean, he fought, was it 63 battles altogether in his career? You don't fight that many if you're not in a bit in love with war. And there were, you know, he did something I mean, there's some things that he's known for that are good, um, but there's many things also that he did for bad. It's, yeah, I, I, I wouldn't say he was a good man at all. I, he probably wouldn't even refer to himself as a good man. It was, for him, it was, you know, it was kill or be killed. I mean, in terms of up there with all the other rulers. Um, and I'm sure that that's how he looked at it, looked at it himself, very cynically. See, some would say that this is just Brits together in a room being Brits and therefore being anti-Napoleon, but you know. No, no. I mean, um, I, it doesn't make our, our side great. I mean, I mean, I've heard a lot about, uh, and of course there was a lot of atrocities in Spain and other places, but we would, I mean, Britain was just as bad. You read about what the British did in the, uh, to suppress the rebellion in Ireland, murders, rapes, it was horrific stuff. Um, so no, I mean, and obviously the Russians, they had uh, served them. Uh, which is terrible. What they did in what they Prussia and Austria all did in Poland uh, was terrible. What Prussia did after Waterloo in France uh, was pretty awful. There's, it's hard to it's 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 a bit mealy mouth, but it's true. There's there's no real good guys here. But it's you know I mean there's unfortunately that's the nature in in war. You just the poor poor sods are in the middle getting plundered by armies and just praying to God that they're not shot. Yeah, I think absolutely. reality is as well, no empire was good empire. British, Spanish, French, German, there, there wasn't such a thing as a good empire. Yeah. No, there wasn't. No, I agree. Um, the way this is going to work, each of my guests is going to have somewhere in the region of five minutes to pitch what they consider to be one of Napoleon's greatest battles. And at the end of that, we'll have a general discussion where we kind of discuss between ourselves what firstly constitutes a great battle but also have a little bit of a think about some of the failings of each other's um, chosen uh, engagements in, in a nice kind of way not in the kind of 
cult Napoleon versus cult anti-Napoleon kind of way, which just involves hurling, in effect, excrement at, at each other. <laughs> um, so who we go to first? Jimmy, start us off. All right. So I have chosen to talk about the Battle of Marengo as, uh, as what I consider to be one of Napoleon's great battles. Now, it's not a particularly great demonstration of Napoleon's abilities on the battlefield, but it is of great uh, political and military uh, significance and arguably sets the scene for much of what we call the Napoleonic era or the Napoleonic Wars. And I, I'm making this argument because, well, let's, let's, let's have a sort of two minute brief summary of the Battle of Marengo, which is gonna be some task. But essentially in uh, 1800, Napoleon is now first consul uh, of the French Republic. And his grasp on political power is still somewhat loose. He's not really um, uh, consolidated as much as uh, he would have liked. And one of the reasons for this is because of the military situation uh, in, well, in Europe generally, but also in Italy, where uh, the Austrians have reestablished their positions, uh, their position in Northern Italy. Thanks much to uh, the Russians under Suvorov and his blistering campaign in 1799. And because Napoleon had uh, conquered Italy the first time, he considered it really his, uh, his backyard and he wanted to, to do it again. And to do so would um, increase his reputation uh, at home and abroad and essentially uh, consolidate his political position. So he went and marched over the Alps as uh, depicted uh, famously although erroneously by David. And uh, by, by June, he was, uh, he was in Northern Italy and he basically ran, ran rings around the Austrian uh, commander, uh, General uh, Michael von Melas. And von Melas basically thought that he was about to be surrounded and decided to uh, to surprise Napoleon to, to, to give battle uh, outside uh, outside the city of Alessandria, the fortress of Alessandria. And essentially, uh, even though Napoleon was under the impression that uh, Vomelus was uh, was planning to escape, uh, Melas was actually going on the offensive and and completely surprised Napoleon and. The, the top of the French line, uh, the head of the French line on the 14th of June was at a, at a small village three kilometers to the east called Marengo. And that's where the first, um, the first shots of the battle were fired. You had a, an Austrian column led by uh, Melas essentially trying to, uh, to break through and a uh, a second column under General Peter, uh, Peter Ott, which was uh, trying to outflank uh, the sort of get over the northern flank of the, of the French position. And essentially fighting, fighting carried on very intensely 
for a couple of hours. Napoleon tried to get as many men onto the front as possible, uh, but eventually Austrian numbers prevailed and the French were forced to fall back. Whereupon uh, comes uh, Napoleon's knight in shining, shining armor, General Dessay, who had only arrived in Italy a few days earlier. And he had been sent off on an errand to try to sort of cut off a possible path of retreat uh, for Melas. But uh, it turned out that with the Battle of Marengo happening where it happened, that he was very much needed on the scene. And he arrived at around uh, half, half four when the, when the French were already falling back. And when he got back, he basically, Napoleon asked him for an assessment of the situation. And he said, Sire, there's, uh, we've already lost this battle, but there's still time to, to win another. And essentially, a, a quick plan was cobbled together. Um, Desaye sent forward uh, some light infantry to, uh, to, to basically blunt the, the Austrian, uh, uh, Austrian pursuers, and uh, a well-timed cavalry charge from General Kellerman uh, routed the Austrian lines and forced them to go back all the way to Alessandria, where Melas had already retired, writing his uh, battle report, thinking that he had won. So Marengo was, if we're talking about the battle itself, its real heroes were you know, Dessay and Kellerman and also uh, Marmont, who uh, commanded the artillery battery, uh, which was you know, firing cancer at the uh, advancing Austrian infantry. But uh, Marengo was very important to Napoleon because had he lost the battle, uh, obviously his reputation as a as a great military commander, you know, unparalleled successes, despite Egypt, which you know, he managed to massage, uh, that would have been very difficult for him to sustain, and that would have uh, uh, that would have weakened his political position in France. And indeed, uh, soon after the Battle of Marengo, maybe just about a week after, Napoleon had to leg it back to Paris to. Um, uh, to attend to political matters in the capital. Uh, so that's why I think uh, without Marengo, Napoleon would have been defeated. His army may have just entirely disintegrated. Uh, Northern Italy would still be under Austrian control. And even, even though it's still, um, even with Marengo, it's still several months, uh, uh, half a year until the Battle of uh, Hohenlinden when this, the second coalition actually came to an end and, and peace was made with the, with the Austrians. But uh, had Napoleon been defeated earlier, then I think we wouldn't see, uh, yeah, we wouldn't see the Napoleonic Code, we wouldn't see Austerlitz, uh, we wouldn't see much of uh, what, we, what we know as the Napoleonic Wars. Fair enough, thanks for that, Jimmy. And um, the first question that occurs to me is this Napoleon planning things really well in the sense that he's got lots of isolated, well not isolated, but he's got lots of core sort of in connection with one another, able to concentrate at the relevant moment to make something like Marengo happen? Or is this him just getting a bit lucky in terms of the fact that Desaix arrives at the right place at the right time mm. because he's 
messed up and has misread the situation and as you say was was losing the battle until the reinforcements arrived um what i would say is that yeah certainly the battle is no demonstration of napoleon's um genius or but uh the operations beforehand uh you could say were rather successful and a um they they sort of um uh pressured what Napoleon would later do as emperor uh, with you know, much larger number of men uh, under his command, but the, the idea of, um, of cause and mutually supporting um, units uh, was certainly something we saw uh, before Marengo. But as I said, Napoleon was, su was surprised at Marengo, which is why he couldn't actually concentrate all of his, um, all of his men. He had about 50,000 men in his army of reserve. At Marengo, he could only, well, before the say turned up, he could only really count on about 20,000. And uh, it was, as you say, it was only um, Desai's intervention. Again, completely um, fortuitous uh, for him to have arrived in the right place at the right time, that uh, they were able to turn this uh, defeat into a victory. Jimmy, thanks very much for that. I thought you put together a really nice case there. Um, let's move on to Rachel now. Rachel, what are you championing for Napoleon's greatest battle? I'm going a bit cliche and I'm choosing Austerlitz. Um, oh, it's a good choice though. I'll put my hands up and firstly say I don't have any pretense of being a battlefield expert or any sort of expertise in that area at all. Um, I'm genuinely, um, generally more kind of drawn to the cultural elements of the, the time and the kind of characters as it were. Um, but I do think this battle shows why people call Napoleon a military genius. I think it shows him at the height of his powers. Obviously a decade later, he goes from pinnacle to depth, but it really shows him at his, his best. And I've chosen Austerlitz for a couple of reasons. Um, firstly, the, the numbers themselves obviously are, are quite impressive. There's a, a little bit of variation in the, the numbers that people think were there, but at the very least, Napoleon was outnumbered by 10,000 troops, possibly as much as 20,000. Um, when you look at the, the numbers um, of the casualties, killed, wounded and captured, um, the Allies lose between killed, wounded and captured something like 38% of their forces. With Napoleon, it works out 13%. So just running the numbers alone, I think it's, it's a fairly impressive battle. But I think it shows Napoleon at his most crafty, it shows him at his most tactical, and it shows that he has a real understanding, not just of the, the, the nature of battle, but the psychological elements as well. He knew he needed a battle um, to capitalise on his success at Ulm. He knew that Kutuzov was going to slip away, um, and he needed battle, but he wanted it on his terms. Being Napoleon, he liked everything on his terms. Um, and he needed to he needed to draw his enemy out. Um, he knew he had a limited time frame to do it, and he baits this huge psychological trap. You know, he he abandons the Pratsen Heights. He deliberately weakens his his right flank. He, he sends General Savary to say that uh, he expressed the Emperor expresses a desire to avoid battle. He's interested in peace to convey this idea that he's actually quite worried that his his force isn't going to be strong enough. I mean, it's the equivalent of sticking a big metaphorical bit of cheese on the Pratsen Heights and the enemy walks into the trap. Um, and 
it also I think one of the things one of the things Napoleon does well and as much as that he's a micromanager to the nth degree he chooses to subordinates well and he knows that he's got Marshal Davu within the the right distance away it's a forced march but he can get there in time and I think his men walk, walk some march something like um six to eight miles in 48 hours um or is it kilometers one of the two um but it's an impressive distance either way he knows he's got people he can call on he knows he's got these forces in reserve he appreciates the topography i mean he, even napoleon doesn't control the weather but it works out to his advantage on the day um and as the the enemy falls on his is weakened flank they're weakening their center and that's when he says to marshal Soult, how quickly can you get up to the the Pratsen heights 20 minutes sire and he gives the attack order to attack in 15. he smashes their center um, and he just, they, they've, he's baited this trap so incredibly well and they've walked right into it. I think in fairness, and Jimmy would know more about this than mine, Kutuzov would have had more sense, um, but he's overruled by Alexander. Um, and there's a quote that I feel kind of sums them up quite well. Napoleon's a military man who fancies himself an emperor. Alexander's an emperor who fancies himself a military man. Um, and he kind of overrules Kutuzov and it's, it's not a good situation at all. But the impact of the battles enormous as well. You, you've got that quote that Pitt says, roll up the map of Europe, it will not be wanted these 10 years. It effectively ends the Holy Roman Empire, which has existed for a millennium. Um, and there's temporary peace at Europe. It forces you know, Austria and, and Russia to come to the, the negotiating table. And I think there's a fairly strongish argument that Napoleon considers itself one of his best battles as well because he gives out no victory title. Um, and, and one of the things, one of the kind of real dichotomies in Napoleon's character that interests me is that he's a very generous rewarder of his subordinates um, when he feels it's justified and nobody benefits more than the marshals. So we see, um, you know, Augereau's Duke of Castiglione and, you know, Davu becomes Duke of Urstadt and um, Messina becomes Duke of Rivoli and so on and so on. Um, Sult was pretty clear that he thought he deserved the title Duke of Austerlitz, which he arguably did because it would be one of his finest hours. But when Napoleon thinks it's his limelight, he doesn't share it. And he thinks it's his triumph, one of his finest hours, and there's no Duke of Austerlitz. Forgive me, Austerlitz. He keeps the title to, him, to himself. Um, so I think it's fairly, it's a fairly convincing argument that Napoleon feels it's one of his finest battles, because when he feels the limelight's his, he, he doesn't share titles. It's the glory belongs to him. So that's why I think Austerlitz is a strong contender for Napoleon's best battle. It's it's a real contender. I mean, the others on the call, uh, people listening by the podcast won't be able to see this, but we're all kind of nodding <laughs> sagely along as you're saying this. Um, and and I love that, that metaphor that you Put there that he's kind of hung that piece of cheese out there on the Prats and Heights and they, they take the bait. Um, it's, it's very difficult to come up with any counterpoints without sounding churlish because this is such a strong contender um, and it shows such imagination. I guess the, the issue I have is the aftermath. As the, um, the, the Russians are running away, the artillery being turned on the lake and the firing on the lake and the men falling through the ice. Does that just take some of the shine off of it in terms of it wasn't a, an honourable thing to do? Strategically, yes, I completely understand why you would do that from a, a perspective of 
let's really stick the knife into this retreating force. Of course you would. But in terms of the honours that are meant to be associated with wars in this time, even though, okay, that that's all changing by this era, it doesn't quite feel right somehow to me. It's brutal. But I, interestingly, while I was compiling all my wee notes today, I read an article that suggested that Napoleon exaggerated that for effect and actually far fewer uh, men drowned when they, they dredged the, the, the lakes, that there were far fewer bodies than Napoleon gave way to believe. And this was him effectively enhancing his bogeyman of Europe reputation and kind of trying to cow people. So um, there is possibly that. But if it, if it is true that the artillery was turned on fleeing soldiers and people drowned like that, I, I think it is brutal and it doesn't really reflect well on the French soldiers at all. Brilliant. Thank you very much. We will keep it rolling. Geraint, take it away. Uh, well, I'm going to go with uh, the Berezina, although after listening to Rachel, I'd probably say uh, Rachel's is probably the best. But, um, but yeah, I'm going to go with the, the Berezina just simply because uh, a lot of it was unintended. He had his back to the wall. There was nothing planned. He just had to do it like that with a flick of the fingers. Uh, he was just for other people then that, that don't know or that listen to the podcast. He was retreating uh, from Moscow. Uh, the army had pretty much broken down by that point. There was literally thousands of stragglers, um, and he cut and he was coming to the Berezina River to cross. Uh, the French engineer general, I'm forgetting the guy's name now, actually disobeyed his orders and had actually burned the bridges and destroyed the stores there that Napoleon was hoping for. Uh, he also, on top of that, had three Russian armies, one from the south, one from the north, uh, and one from the west, all heading towards him. So, um, on top, so on top of being trapped by a river with, a, with an army that's literally breaking down, uh, or has broken down, uh, with no supplies, he's got not one, but three armies coming for him. And yeah, as far as I'm concerned, this was Napoleon at his very best on a tactical level. Um, he manages to use Victor's call, which is fairly unengaged, or, or still fairly together, shall we say, uh, to uh, faint with the Russians. He actually gets his engineers to literally build bridges in the middle of freezing water of minus 29 or whatever the, the temperature was at the time. I mean, those engineers they must have realized that <laughs> they were going to their deaths building that bridge and you know they did but they did the job and he's just having to fend off and faint and hold off three different armies get a bridge built get his mm -hmm. army over that and get his army over that bridge and he does that and he does that um i don't think anyone else um at the time probably could have done that i mean uh, there was a, a similar retreat for Wellington in 1812 from Burgos and survivors of the Corona campaign were saying the Burgos retreat was actually worse. So it's, it, it took Napoleon to have done that. I don't think any other general would have been able to have done that at the time. And that's why I would rate him uh, for that battle as his best battle, just simply because he wasn't prepared for it. Uh, it was something completely thrown at him, unexpected, and yet he managed to save his army or the remnants of it anyway. Uh, a load of stragglers refused to go. And then unfortunately the Russians or the Cossacks caught up with them. Uh, they stampeded the bridge, which collapsed the bridge and a lot of the survivors on the far bank were killed. But 
uh, from Napoleon's point of view, he got his combat army over that river. Thanks very much. One thing that strikes me, I mean, the troops, they've got their back to the wall here, almost literally, in the fact that they've yeah. got a river, river. behind them. Um, is there an argument to be made that what matters in a time like that is survival instinct? And so in some sense, Napoleon kind of knew that he could ask far above and beyond what was required, because when, when you've got no other way out, men will, well, anybody will, will go that bit further in terms of fighting. I mean, I'm, I'm struck with sort of parallels with what happened at Corinna um, under Moore in early 1809. That's that's a that's a good uh, good response. All I would say is though that I think they've gone beyond that. I mean, literally, uh, I think uh, the numbers about forty thousand ha stragglers had given up. They refused to move. They had enough. They would rather if they just decided to sit there and wait for death or whatever, uh, or imprisonment, rather than than move. So, um, his I mean, his general had already disobeyed his orders and destroyed destroyed these br those bridges and those supplies. So from his perspective, um, I think the survival instincts, they'd already gone past that by that point. Um, just, which is, which is incredible, but it's true. Sometimes people just give up and that's what most of that French army had done, yet he still managed to get them across the river. Yeah, I, I think that's a really good point, absolutely. Josh, last but by no means least, take it away. I am I'm championing I'm championing the Battle of Rivoli in uh, 1797. So let us first speak of numbers. Um, you're dealing here with the French army, the Armée d'Italie, uh, of uh, 23,000-24,000 men. Um, and on the day on on the day of the battle, the Austrians were fielding somewhere around 28,000. So a decent uh, a, a decent uh, proportion more than the French. Um, the goal of the Austrians in this campaign is to relieve the siege of Mantua and restore Austrian possessions in northern Italy. And obviously, the French are trying to stop them doing that. Um, the, general, the general situation is that there have been three attempts already to relieve Mantua, and they had all failed. Austrian morale was pretty low, uh, and time was running out uh, to relieve the city. By January of 1797, uh, Austrian commander Freiherr uh, Josef Alfinsti had gathered together a strong force uh, out of uh, reinforcements and what was left of the rather battered units that had been uh, knocked around by Napoleon previously uh, that year um, into, uh, into about, the, he'd, he'd formed them into about five columns representing roughly three general thrusts to break through the French army the problem that had plagued the Austrian relief attempts um, up to this point was the mobile and audacious nature of the French defense of the river Adige and the mountain, and, and the mountain passes to the south. Um, Napoleon uh, had stayed mobile and, and rough, relatively separated, but his fast moving divisions could um, always concentrate with, uh, with miraculous speed. Um, to any given point as if commanded by some sort of wizardry as far as the Austrians were concerned. This had been, a, this, this, this had been their undoing. Napoleon, of course, was feeling the strain as well. He'd only been able to, he'd, by this point, he was only able to dispose of about 45,000 men across the entire, um, 
area of operations. This is opposed to the uh, 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 Austrian strength of around 48,000 to 50,000 in the general area. Um, obviously, in Mantua, trying to break through to Mantua, defending the passes to Mantua, and etc. Um, this, of course, again, again, paradoxically, was also still bad for the Austrians because they had been fought to a bruising standstill and they had, um, each time they had tried to get through to the, the wide plains that surrounded the city to exploit their better numbers, they had just been stopped. And strategically speaking, this is one of Napoleon's finest hours. This is what signals him as the great, the, the new shining star uh, of European warfare, this first Italian campaign leading up to the Battle of Rivoli. Um, and so this was the Austrians' fourth and probably they all knew last attempt to break through. And they were going to just throw as many men at the Adige and the mountains as, as was possible and find a way through. That was, that was pretty much it. And why this battle is Napoleon's greatest is pretty much that because all of Napoleon's battles, as we've actually heard today, um, are fought on a tightrope. All his greatest battles are fought on a tightrope. He gambled time and time again on maximum damage um, for maximum success. Every time he fought one of these battles, he was risking utter annihilation, basically, and he knew that very well. But he counted on a superior genius, what he believed was his superior genius, uh, and of his, of his subordinates uh, and his men, to be able to in instinctively make the right decisions, even if he was theoretically lost by all previous standards of warfare. Rivoli was the first of these photo finish victories, I feel, and it was a spectacular one because the multi-pronged Austrian attack at first perplexed Napoleon, but he waited at least two days to, to see which of the thrusts was actually the one that he needed to deal with. And, and, and when that happened, it was signaled by the fact that one of his, he originally was actually going to attack a different Austrian force, but then I believe it was General uh, Joubert uh, at Rivoli, uh, the pass of Rivoli on the Adige, who got forced back and he got reports of this happening. And that was when he sent messages saying to General Massena to get your butt over to Rivoli as fast as possible. And he galloped there himself and he uh, stalled his attacking, his, his retreating division. And uh, with orders to concentrate already uh, sent, he basically had it basically was instructed you are basically to stand here and die to a man uh, but die to a man you will if you can hold this position and so they slogged it out this uh this 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 battlefield is very tricky it's it's formed by um it's very narrow the access to it are very narrow there's a plateau of rivoli where the austrians had to get onto to 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 form into line and on one side, you have the River Adige, and on the other side, you have a tributary, and in the middle, you have the Plateau of Rivoli, overlooked by uh, Monte Boldo or something like that. It's very mountainous and tricky. The Austrians actually were very close, because of this topography, to actually enveloping Napoleon completely, cutting him off from support, and crushing him in this little pocket. And they had, um, I think his name was General uh, Lusignan, um, marching to do very to that to do that very thing, so Napoleon has to dig in and hold on, and he does that because Massena appears, 
and he's one of his he's one of his golden boys, Messena. You can depend on Messena to do marvelous things, and that's what he does. He's he he splits his division almost across the entire field, and he holds on against the Austrians. Now, with the center of the Austrians making progress and the flanks actually being held up by the rivers and Messena's, you know, miraculous uh, division. Napoleon builds up troops behind the main line under Joubert, which is pushed back. But when the Austrians deploy, coming out of this narrow valley, Napoleon unmasks 15 guns and pounds them. He punishes them for it. And then when the Austrians attack, he's able to counterattack with uh, more reinforcements. Cavalry is now up. Uh, one of the most hilarious things about it is that um, General uh, uh, LaSalle is running around with like 25 men of the chasseurs or something like that. And he captures an entire battalion. Uh, uh, one Austrian brigade of up to 4,000 men is reduced to 300 by the end of the day's fighting, by the end of this counterattack. The losses are incalculable compared by the scale of it. And this, actually this battle, the numbers are only like a, a, a fraction, they're about a fraction. They're not, they're, not, they're not huge, I guess, but I guess, Compared to Austerlitz, it's almost comparable because by the end of the day, by end of two days of fighting, because the Austrians get thrown back with horrendous casualties, the next day, General, I think, Joubert takes over and he crashes them again. By the end of the fighting, uh, Michael Brewers estimates that there are 11,000 Austrian prisoners, 3,000 killed and wounded. And over the next couple of days, the Austrian fighting force is reduced from around 28,000 to a broken rabble of 13,000. And it is the end. Mantua surrenders Northern Italy uh, until, as Jimmy said, the second Italian campaign uh, because of Suvorov's uh, invasion uh, is in, in the hands of the Republic. And Napoleon is, is I, 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 lose, I, I lose words. All of Europe lost words. This guy with a broken rabble of an army of a bunch of Republican recruits and volunteers and nobody's commanding them from like, who, from rural places in France had humbled the Austrians so badly that some brigades were reduced to 300 men. What? <laughs> and this pattern of getting in there dragging your opponent down the pit with you and crushing him as you fall and then chasing him out is exactly what he did at Marengo, tried to do at Marengo mm -hmm. and got away with it by dint of his subordinates. What he did at Austerlitz with a more refined and a much more professional army and what he then did at, um, what he tried to do at Waterloo actually, I think, this is his pattern. That's what made that's what made him so dangerous to tangle with, and I think this this model you see at Rivoli, where mutually supporting forces rush to one point, is exactly what he did for the rest of his career, and that's why I think Rivoli is arguably one of his most impressive, but quite often overlooked victories just because Austerlitz and, and Trident and things like that, like, who were fought against morons, I might add. Um, <laughs> um, this guy actually had a chance of winning and just destroying Napoleon. Uh, 
I, I, that's why I think Rivoli is highly impressive and should be more uh, praised as a, as a feat of arms. Josh, that was impassioned beyond words. Thank you very much for that. <laughs> Again, it's difficult to be cholish because you made such a strong case. Um, and inevitably, where I am kind of putting forward these devil's advocate questions, I, I'm going to sound cholish, but hey, that, that's what I'm here for. Um, if you're gambling everything on a single pitched engagement, is that necessarily an indication of exceptional ability? Um, and perhaps an indication more of recklessness. And I, I would never be one of these people who says that uh, Napoleon kind of was lucky in the way in which he sustained his career because there's too much consistency there for anybody to put that together. But if you are gambling everything every single time, is that not the case of just throwing everything and the kitchen sink at a battle rather than thinking like other great military minds, which is how do I also ensure that if everything were to go to pot, I have some way of salvaging this? Mm. Good question. Good question. It's fair. I think it speaks to Napoleon's general career more than perhaps Rivoli itself. But um, Napoleon was a gambler. He said himself, is this general lucky? luck is very, basically he said that luck is some percentage of success or whatever, one of his many maxims or something like that. But this plan was the one that he tended to go for and became less and less successful as general as he came against stiffer opposition towards the uh, end of the coalitions. Perhaps doesn't speak so much to uh, a, a weakness as Perhaps that the talent that he did have, that, you, that we all have to acknowledge that he had for pulling stuff out of the bag or having uh, subordinates who can do it for him. Um, and it's, it, that is one of, the th one of the great things of 18th and 19th century European uh, military history is that field battles are risky propositions anyway. It, it's highly unusual to have a general who actually wants to fight in the field and doesn't just want to like fight sieges all the time. Marlborough was particularly strange for the fact he sought battles because the destruction of your army is essentially the destruction of your uh, war effort. And Napoleon cottoned on from Rivoli onwards, I think, to this idea, they don't want to fight me. So if I go and fight them, I have the advantage and I can force my own terms on them. And at Rivoli, unlike some of the other battles that have been mentioned, uh, he, he was in control of it, basically. And I think so, so long as he was able to retain control, which is why Morango was so dodgy, um, and obviously Waterloo, and uh, when things started spiraling out of control, this is like, I'm sorry to bring up the Duke of Wellington here, but it's like what Wellington said about <laughs> harnesses. Napoleon's strategy was a leather harness that when it worked, it worked superbly. But what you actually want is a rope harness. So when something goes wrong, you tie a knot and you go on. This is yeah. Napoleon's leather harness. Absolutely, I, I love that quote and I think you, you put that very well. Let me throw it open to the others then. Um, sadly, Rachel has had to duck out, but uh, she sends us all her best. She made a, a very strong case for Alcelet. I'm I'm reluctant to invite you all to 
stick the knife in in her absence, but I'm going to encourage <laughs> you to do that anyway. Um, so counterpoints to Austerlitz as Napoleon's greatest battle. Well, to, to echo what Josh has said, um, with the exception of Kutuzov on the Allied side, um, Austerlitz was fought against morons. Um, you had, you know, you had Alexander, who, by virtue of being Tsar, was, you know, essentially um, decided to stamp his authority as commander-in-chief. And uh, he accepted the Austrian chief of staff's uh, uh, suggestion that, you know, basically you should, uh, you should not only sort of uh, send the entire left flank against you know this seemingly weakened um uh position of uh Telnitz and Sokonitz, but uh, also you know most of the center and uh, you know, when you've got a, a massive army streaming streaming along like that they'll need to get the job done very quickly otherwise they're going to get absolutely punished in the center which is what napoleon did so i think um it's just Overconfidence from uh, from Alexander and from the from the Austrians, who I think you know Kutuzov would have been happy to retreat, you know, back to Moscow. <laughs> but um, uh, Weyrother, the um, the Austrian chief of staff and the Austrian command, basically thought that well, Vienna is under French occupation. We want to press on the issue. We want to sort of get this done as as quickly as possible. We're outnumbering the man. Uh, and together with all the um, deceptions that uh, Rachel talked about, with um, uh, the uh, with the Allies being under the impression that um, that Napoleon was perhaps uh, not as strong as um, had his weaknesses, um, they just decided to go go all in for it. And really, this this is a case of the of the coalition going all in, but you know. Um, not having the abilities to, to pull it off, especially when you're against Davout. Seeing as you were brave enough to go first, Ginny, I'm now going to punish you for that bravery by encouraging <laughs> the others to now stick the knife into your back. So, <laughs> so Josh and Geraint, you make great points, I should say. Mm. Like, you, you make powerful points there. Um, I agree Josh. with them pretty much. I, I'd, I'd have made the same. <laughs> Can't argue with that. Um, Josh Geraint, when it comes to uh, to Marengo, what are your thoughts? Well, I think Melis was a fairly capable commander. I mean, he performed well with Suvorov um, just only the year previously. So, um, you know, it's there's a lot. There's a. I mean, it it is war. I mean, I've. I mean, you mentioned like he was facing some idiots. Like I was reading the campaigns of the in the American Civil War of Robert E. Lee and uh, how he was fighting McClellan and he was launching <laughs> stuff for attacks against McClellan and he was losing, but McClellan just kept repeating, kept retreating. I mean, at the end of the day, you can only, you know, it's, they're not the only ones. It's, you've got, you've got idiots all around. I, I think the only thing I disagree really is with, about Benison when you said he was a moron, because, I mean, apart from Friedman, he'd actually, uh, up, up till that point, he'd actually led a decent campaign, just reading up on it. He'd even beaten Napoleon at, at a battle, uh, not after Eilau, Eilau's draw, but um, yeah. I've got their names it now. Charles Yeah, that's the one, yeah. 
because uh, Chandler said he was Murat there, but I've read books and it's like, no, Napoleon was actually at the battle, so, and he was actually directing it. Basically, my argument against Marengo being his, his, uh, one of his greatest victories, it's on the flags, it's true. He boasted about it, it's true. But it was not his battle to win. Um, despite what Rachel very, very interestingly said about Austerlitz not being um, a, a ducal title, um, you know, Marengo should have been somebody's title, should have been Desai's title, should have been Kellerman. He was dead. Uh, <laughs> you know, well, posthumously, you know, give it to his family, for heaven's sake. You know, it, the glory was out somewhere else. He had lost. He was sitting by the roadside in despair when Dessay showed up and won the second battle. So basically my argument of that, although the political ramifications of it were very great and it was spun to be part of the Napoleonic legend, it is essentially a failed rivalry and, um, and it, it, wasn't his, it wasn't his talent that won it. I, right. I didn't. I, I didn't dispute that. My my point. My point was that it wasn't a very good good battle. But um, part of, oh no, part no, of no, the <laughs> agree. I, I, yeah, yeah. Basically, so basically, I agree with you. But I think that's that kind of makes. I'm just sort of hammering that home slightly. You're, you're questioning <laughs> my my interpretation of the uh, <laughs> of the terms of engagement. <laughs> We're historians. We question everything. Let's let's turn the table on Josh now. Um, Rivoli. It, it, it's, it's rather difficult because, um, it, it, as Josh said, it's not a battle many people know much about, and therefore, you know, much of what we know is what Josh told us 10 minutes ago. And, um, therefore, I mean, what? <laughs> so, yeah, what I would, what I would say about, um, about something like uh, like Rivoli, why why did you put why did you pick Rivoli rather than some of the earlier battles in the uh, in the first Italian campaign? Because there was oh, like oh, Lodi and Arcola, which a question uh, what a county question? Do you <laughs> want a response? Sake. Um, no, uh, I picked uh, Rivoli because it was the the end of the campaign. That was what finished it. Okay. Um, if the Austrians could have, have it all recovered, they would have again and tried probably again because this was their fourth attempt. The other battles had not stopped them. Mm -hmm. So this was, that's why. That makes sense. Okay, and then lastly, but by no means least, Berezina. What are the, the counter arguments on Berezina? Well, I think you were very brave to choose Berezina <laughs> as his greatest battle and not Friedland or something or something because um, if you can call it a battle, it's in a very modern sense because it took a couple of days or over the course of several days. Um, and um, if, if, he, if it's a battle, he lost it. If it is the end of the campaign, obviously then, okay, he got some men away, but I'm gonna return to the idea of facing more armies. <laughs> now, I don't mean Kutuzov, and I don't particularly mean Wittgenstein, but I do mean the guy who was to his south. Oh, Chichikov. The guy, yeah. Chichagov. The Admiral. Admiral, Admiral Chichagov, who was meant to cut off the escape of the French army. Now, obviously the Russians all blamed each other for doing this. And I'm sure Jimmy will bring up a point about why Kutuzov did not press the attack. But the reason, the only reason Napoleon got the heck over that river is because Chichagov did not do 
what many generals of brigade would know to do, which is search left and right up, up, the, up that river for other crossing points. That's a fair point, but Napoleon would not have known that at the time. Um, I, 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 that's not really my problem, though, is it? <laughs> <laughs> Josh is just there to pose difficult questions. I'm consciously <laughs> rapidly running out of time. Jimmy, I've got to give you the opportunity, though, to, to talk Russia. Right, yes. Um, just a quick point about Kutuzov's motivations, because Kutuzov could have had the opportunity to destroy Napoleon's entire army on several occasions earlier, especially at the Battle of Krasny. And the reason that he didn't, and the reason why he actually essentially allowed Napoleon to escape at, uh, at Krasny and at Berezina, is because he had a understanding of the geopolitical situation. And he understood that if Napoleon were out of the way, if Napoleonic France, if, if Napoleon was no longer there, then essentially the predominant power in Europe would be the power that, um, that controlled uh, the seas, i.e. Great Britain, and that Russia, you know, while allied to Britain at the time, may not enjoy the fruits of that uh, alliance for very long. And I think, uh, you know, given the fact that the, that the Crimean War happened about 40 years later, and with, um, and with the British and French now fighting on the same side, I think he had a point. The only thing is that obviously Alexander um, decided to continue uh, the campaign into 18, 1814, 1813 and 1814 um, to, uh, to, to put an end to, to Napoleon. So Kutuzov was basically being insubordinate and effectively allowing at least Napoleon and uh, the core of his, of his army to escape. Napoleon was allowed to run away at Berezina. I'm, I'm afraid we're going to have to cut it short there. Gents, uh, it's been fantastic having you on. Thank you also to Rachel. That was the first of two instalments on Napoleon's Greatest Battle. I was joined by Josh Proven, Rachel Stark, Jimmy Chen and Geraint Thatcher, who championed Rivoli, Austerlitz, Marengo and Berezina respectively. All four of my guests are on Twitter. Josh can be found at Land of History and his YouTube channel of the same name, features a wealth of videos and interviews discussing a diverse range of history, military history topics, including the Napoleonic Wars, all of which I would highly recommend. Rachel can be found on Twitter at BookishRachel, and I'll thoroughly recommend following her for great threads and tweets on the Napoleonic Wars and for general good humour in her Twitter content. Jimmy can be found at JSC1812, and his website, Napoleonic Impressions, can be found at napoleonicimpressions.com. Definitely a site to check out if you're looking for stocking fillers for the Napoleon assist in your life. And finally, Geraint Thatcher is always posting thought-provoking questions via his account at Thatch, G-E-R-1. The conversation continues online and you can have your say on what was Napoleon's greatest battle. A Twitter vote is open for all of the battles features in this episode, with the winner of both this heat and the one to follow next week going through to a two-way vote in the final week of November. You can have your say by searching for my Twitter account at ZWhiteHistory, and you can also join the discussion in the forum at thenapoleonicwars.net. Napoleon Month continues all November here on The Napoleonicist. 
On Sunday the 15th, I'll be bringing you the Napoleon the Great debate as Marcus Cribb and Luke Daly Groves grapple with the conflicting interpretations on the Emperor's legacy. Um, on the 18th, you can enjoy the second instalment of Napoleon's Greatest Battle, where another four will appropriately battle it out for your votes. On the 22nd, I'll be bringing you a superb interview with Professor Beatrice de Graaf on Napoleon diplomacy and state security before wrapping up the month with two installments of a new feature on Napoleon's marshals. I'll be joined once again by Josh Proven in a double feature on those marshals who served specifically in the Peninsula War, discussing their wider career, of course, uh, which we have affectionately termed Boney's Boys in Spain. Those two episodes will air on the 25th and 29th of November, with more on those who served in other theatres due to follow in the new year. Until next time, though, I'm Zach White. This has been the first instalment of Napoleon's Greatest Battles, part of Napoleon Month on the Napoleon Assist. Take care of yourselves, my friends. Stay well, stay safe. And as always, thank you for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky, smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER.